0: Morning, West Bears Church. It's great to see you here today. If you are a uh, guest here with us, prayed for you. I hope that uh, you feel a sense of ease as you come in this Labor Day weekend and interact with us. I hope that you're encouraged, um, like our church family has been and will be, through this book of 1 Peter. And if you uh, are just kind of new to the Bible, we are preaching through this book called 1 Peter. And the Bible consists of 66 books made into one story of redemption. And 1 Peter is one of those letters that we find, one of those books that we find within the entire book of the Bible. And it's on the right side of your Bible. You're going to need a Bible today. Grab that and make your way to chapter 1. We've spent a couple weeks now in 1 Peter, and we're going to continue walking through this, honestly, all the way up until almost Christmas, up towards December. So we have a lot more to cover, but today we're going to be in Verse 13. And remember, the large number are the chapter numbers, small number are the verse numbers. So 1 Peter chapter 1 will be in verse 13, and it's a great passage that we're going to dive into today, going to unpack a lot of rich truth. And so let's, uh, let's look, beginning in verse 13, you follow along as I read out loud. The Word of God says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout a time of your exile. and hope are in God. Pray with me this morning. Father God, we ask today that you would, by your power and your spirit, help us to understand these truths. Lord, through your strength, would you sanctify our imaginations so that we can envision what a life of obedience to these words might mean for us. Would you help us to see by the power of your spirit how much more pleasant your way is than our will and our way? We pray, God, that you would teach us, you'd mold us, that you'd make us whatever it is that you want to do in our lives. Lord, would you please do it this morning? And I ask and invite you in this time of silence, to pray something similar, that God would mold you, shape you, make you, whatever it is that he desires to do in your life today. Would you pray and ask God to do that now? Would you also pray for me as we look at this living hope Hope that leads to our holiness. Would you just pray that I would serve you well by reading God's word well, by explaining it and applying it to our lives? Would you just pray for me now? Lord Jesus, we long for your word, and in your righteousness, would you please give us life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Alright, As I'm reading this passage this week, there are a, a lot of words, there are a lot of deep, rich theology that you find within this passage. And what's interesting is I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I can kind of get overwhelmed by all the different words and everything that's being said, but you can really boil it down to just a few commands. And it's interesting because this is the, the first time Peter is given a command so far in the book. He's gone through 12 verses talking about hope, and now he's just getting to the point where he's going to give us several commands of how we live in this hope, how our hope moves from hope to holiness. And so what I want to do with the time we have today is just highlight those commands for us and then show us how we can tangibly live them out in our life. The first command I want us to see and grasp this morning is this. A hopeful heart requires an active and attentive mind. A hopeful heart requires an active and attentive mind. Now, the reason why we talk about hope again is because that's kind of the theme that's woven throughout the entire book of 1 Peter, and he's going to talk about it even multiple times in this passage that we read. But in verse 13, the the command that he gives us is, set your hope, that we would set our hope on the grace at the revelation of Jesus. (laughs) If you've been here the last couple of weeks, Peter is clearly passionate about hope. He's talked about hope a lot. In verse 3, he says we've been born again to a new and living hope. Then in verse 13 right here, he says we're going to set our hope fully on the return of Christ. And then in verse 21, he says it again, that we would place our hope in God. And the reason why I believe that Peter talks so much about hope is not just the context. For sure, we've talked about that in the last few weeks and the amount of suffering and pain that these people have walked through. But the reason is is because he knows that hope is the fuel for endurance, for faithfulness, and for righteous living. And so it makes sense that Peter's first command to, to us as believers is that we would set our hope on the arrival of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but at least for me, as I'm reading this this week, the first command so we'd set our hope fully on the return of Christ, but the reality is that we probably rarely, if ever, think about it. The command for us to be able to have hope in our hearts. It's to think about the coming of Christ. That's what the end of verse 13 is saying, the revelation of Christ. When Christ is revealed, when we see him face to face, for we will all see him face to face, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you in that day. You see, Peter is not just challenging you and I to believe in the return of Jesus Christ. He's not just saying, believe that Jesus is coming again, and that's the command. No, he's saying, set your hope, your emotion, your your mental well-being on this reality that Christ is coming again. So how in the world do we control our hopes? How can we have a hopeful heart within us? How do we set our hope fully on the return of Christ? You see... If we really think about that, many times when we think about setting something, it's very tangible. Like, I came up here and Ryan set his Bible down on this stand, right? It's a tangible Bible, tangible stand. Ryan sets it there and it rests on the stand. But Peter's going to talk about some very intangible stuff for us. He's going to say, set your hope, right, hope on the grace (laughs) that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus? How in the world do we take these intangibles of hope and grace and dial them in to the returning of Christ? How do we set our hope on Him? Now, maybe a better question for some of us, though, is what happens when you're hopeless and you have nothing to set? some of us feel that way. Well, this is where you have to go back to the beginning of the book of 1 Peter. The last two weeks as we've walked through it, those 12 verses that we've we've already studied, we've already walked through, that we've already talked through in our small groups, those are meant to give us hope. And so if you're sitting here like, I don't have any hope, then, then take your mind back to the beginning of chapter 1, and rest on these truths again. Now, let me be clear. These truths that you find in chapter 1 are only for believers. Peter is writing to the the believers that have been scattered, scattered in different areas in Turkey, and he's reminding them of the truths that they find in Christ. Let your mind be encouraged. Let your hope be birthed through these truths. He tells us earlier in chapter 1 that we are born again to a living hope. Remember again that our hope as believers is not a fake hope or a dead or dying hope. It is a living hope that is active to whatever situation we find ourselves, whatever circumstance. We have a hope that is living and breathing because Jesus Christ is alive. He's our hope. It tells us too that we have an inheritance. and We unpacked what it means that this inheritance that we've been given from Christ, it never perishes It never spoils. It never fades. It will go on for eternity, this beautiful inheritance that is given to us through Christ. And it even tells us in earlier in chapter 1 that God is guarding that inheritance. He's guarding it, which means we can't lose it. And it's an inheritance, which means we didn't earn it. Somebody else earned it and gave it to us, right? And these are things that should breathe into our heart, into our soul, hope. And So if you do still feel hopeless, go back and read these verses again. Rest in these truths that Peter's given us earlier in this chapter. Because now he's he's churning, he's kind of changing gears saying, now that we have this living hope that is within us, how do we live it out? What does it practically look like to have a, a heart that's full of hope? Now, there's two participles that go around this verb to hope fully or set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you that aren't big into English, let me dumb it down to just to Ryan's language. You have a verb, which is an action that you're supposed to live out, setting your hope. The participles around it in a, in a sentence will tell you how to do that. And what's great is Peter gives us this command, set your hope, these intangibles, this hope and this grace On the return of Jesus Christ, how in the world do we do that? And what is fascinating is Peter points to our minds. Our minds are going to affect our emotions. The things that we think about are the things that we are going to chase. Things we're going to run after. The things that we care about are the things we're going to invest in. You see, our thoughts are the fuel for the fire of the hopes of our heart. Let me tell you what I mean. These two participles that tell us how to set our our hope on the Lord and His coming, both found in verse 13. First, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds. Second thing, be sober-minded. These are the two participles that help us know how to set our hope fully in the grace that will be brought to us at the return of Christ. Now, prepare your mind. What does that mean? What, is, what does that mean to prepare our mind? It means for us to think actively, to think actively. This word for prepare your mind, your Bible, if, if you have a different translation, it might actually say gird up the loins of your mind, which sounds really weird, okay? That's why they tweaked it a little bit for prepare your minds. But it was an, an illustration that Peter, as he writes this, is trying to get the people of that day to understand See, if somebody wanted to, to get somewhere quickly with haste, wanted to be active, what they would do is they would take their, their long robes and they would tuck it into their, their belts so they could run. That's what it meant to gird up your loins. And Peter's saying, if you want your mind to be active, then you've got you've to gird up your loins. If you want to think well on the, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ then you've got to gird up the loins of your mind and be actively thinking about the truth. You have to be ready and anticipating the coming of Christ. And one of the things I love best about Peter is Peter plagiarizes Christ a a ton. He'll he'll quote Christ different times and not even cite him in here. But when he talks about this whole preparing your minds or girding up your loins, being ready for the return of Christ, actively engaging your mind, thinking about it, It's something that Jesus taught multiple times. One of my favorites is in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Jesus kind of shares this this illustration or what you call a parable. And he talked about these guys waiting for their boss to come back. That they would be waiting at the house for him, ready with their their loids girded, right? And this is what it says in Luke chapter 12. Jesus' response to this parable, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, this is active language, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. He's telling us to be active, to be ready, to be anticipating this coming of Christ in which he will pour more and more grace into our life. This still leads us to the question, how do we gird up our loins? How do we actively, intentionally set our mind on the return of Christ? So let me just give you a couple things that I found as I was thinking about this this week from my life that helped my mind actively engage in the coming of Christ. First, saturate your mind with the Word. Saturate your mind with the Word (laughs) because We might not commonly just think about it while we're driving down the road that Christ is coming again. But when you read the Scriptures and you let your mind rest in the Scriptures, you're going to come to passages like this and remember this truth. Man, this is meant to give me hope that Christ is coming again. I think this is one of the reasons why when you get to the book of Revelation, as confusing as it is, it's talking about the revelation of Christ when He will be revealed again, when He comes back and we see Him. And at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, blessed are all who read this book and hear it. And I don't know about you, but you, you read that book, and there, there's a lot of head scratchers, and like, what is this, and what's going on there? But the reality, the promise that's given us through the Word of God is, you read that, and you think about the returning to Christ, and you are blessed. And I think one of the ways that we are blessed as we read and we think about that is we have this hope, this deep rich hope in our heart and our soul. And so saturate your mind. If you want to you prepare your minds for action, then saturate your mind with the Word of God. Second, and this is just practically, for me, I, I look at creation, and there's so much in creation, the Bible tells us that groans for Christ's coming, groans for His coming again. And oftentimes in the mornings, when I go out and I run and I see the sun come up over the horizon, I just remember the truth of what God's Word says, that when Christ comes again, He His glory will outshine the sun. His glory will outshine the sun. There will be no need for a sun or a moon, it tells us, because the glory of Christ would shine light everywhere it's needed. And I think, as I look at the sun slowly starting to come up over the horizon, and the light slowly starts to peak on the horizon, what I think about in my mind is that Right now, where we live in our day, and our age, and our culture, that day of peace that Christ will bring, it dimly shines. It dimly shines right now. But one day, it will be in its full, bright, noonday sun when Christ comes again. So I even look at that, and I'm reminded as I run, as I see the sunrise, that Christ is coming again. His light will shine. This darkness will be eradicated, and His glory will be seen by all. Another way that I work to engage my mind is a way that's honestly something I don't choose for myself, and many of us don't ever want this. But in the reality, these hard, difficult moments guide our minds and, and create our hearts a longing for His return. And it's sickness and sorrow. I don't know about you, but when I get sick and I'm down and I'm out and I just feel terrible and I don't even want to get out of bed, I am always thanking God. Thank you that this is not going to last forever. Thank you that I, that I won't be hugging the toilet bowl the rest of my life, right? Like, this is not going to happen. I know that one day God will repair this broken body when he comes again, and there will be no sickness or pain or suffering. And I literally, when I am down and I'm out and I'm sick, I'm sitting there thinking, God, thank you. Thank you that you're coming again to do away with all of this. Praise God for that. We can sit around and complain about our sickness, or we can look up with thankfulness that it's not going to be forever for believers but I also think on the sorrow side of things. This is where my mind actively engages in the return of Christ. When I go to a funeral, or when I experience death around me through friends or through family, it makes me long, long for the coming of Christ. Oh, that He would come back again and do away with death. That this living hope would come to a reality for those who have trusted and believed in Him. And though we wouldn't Choose sickness nor sorrows. these should be a time for us not to disengage, but to engage our mind and actively remember that Christ is coming. all oh, that these things would be preparing our minds, remembering and setting our hope fully on the return of Christ. And so think, think actively. be intentional to think actively. But the second thing he's going to tell us, the second part is simple, is that we would think attentively. Not just be active, but be attentive in our thoughts. In verse 13, it tells us here, be sober-minded. Now, when we think attentively, in verse 13, he, he, he closely connects it to being sober-minded because, yes, this means don't get drunk, but it means much, much more than that. You see, we all know what it looks like for somebody when they get drunk, right? Their mind starts to struggle to think clearly, they lose perspective on, on reality of this world. You know, may, Maybe there's a, a little bit more blurred vision than they had before. Their mind is not attentive. It's numb. And what Peter is saying as he writes this here is, yeah, of course don't be drunk, but more than that, don't let your, your life and your mind be drunk on things that are trivial or sensational or trite. Rather, be attentive to what your mind is thinking on and resting on And set your mind on the hope that Christ is coming again. You see, he says, if you want to have hope, living as an exile in this broken world, then don't let your mind drink up what distracts you from God. Let your mind be focused. There's two other times in 1 Peter that he references this idea of having sober minds. And it helps us because, as he writes it here in this first chapter, he doesn't explain a lot about it. But as we look in chapter 4 and in chapter 5... This sober-minded aspect and letting our minds be attentive are so important because of what it steals from us when we're not. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Let your mind be attentive. Let your mind be active. Why? Because it will shape and change the way that you pray. You won't pray the same thing the same way all the time. Your mind is engaged. Your mind is active. And this is one of the ways he's telling us, be sober-minded. Get your mind engaged in the coming of Christ, and it will shape and change your prayers. Then in chapter 5, verse 7, Peter's going to say again, casting all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And then here it is, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your, adverse, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Isn't it interesting that Peter says we need to be sober minded so that we can pray? And later he says if you're not sober minded, your life is going to be filled with anxiety and temptation. Isn't that fascinating? How often do we pray? How often are we tempted by anxiety and distraction? If you are an anxious, distracted person, God's Word is telling you to sober up. Sober up. Why? So that the enemy doesn't come in and steal our living hope. Instead, we, as we engage our mind, we are Finding living hope, and we're giving living hope to the world. You see, if we're not careful, we become apathetic and we'll remove our minds from the fight. And he's telling us, be attentive. Let your minds be sober as you think on the Lord. Now, let me try to wrap uh, up verse 13 in kind of a neat bow or this point with just a short, simple statement of what we're trying to to do with verse 13. Let us use our mind to stir our hope. Use your mind. Engage your mind to stir your hope. Use your mind to serve your soul. See, Peter knows that you cannot separate your mind from our hope. He knows that genuine hope grows well in the, does not grow well in the field of ignorance, and a living hope will not blossom in a bed of apathy. It requires the soul of the grace of Jesus Christ's second coming. So use your mind to stir up your hope. Now, setting your hope on Jesus and his coming is not the only command that we find in this passage. We find another command, and it's around our lifestyle. It tells us in verse 15 to be holy. Be holy. You see, hope leads to holiness. It tells us in verse 13, prepare your minds for what? For action, that you're to live out your hope, that, that hope changes and shapes the way that you live. And when we talk about holiness, sometimes this can be confusing, because we might know that the word holiness literally means to be set apart, to be different, but we just hear a command, be holy, church, and we're like, what does that mean? Like, just be holy. Does that mean, like, I need to go buy a whole bunch of Christian t-shirts, and it just has Bible verses on it, and then like, I'm holy, is that, is that what it means for us to be holy? Or does it mean I need to go get like a bumper sticker or a Christian fish, and I'll put it on the back of my car, and, like, car, and now I'll be holy? Is that, is, that what he's, is that what he's saying? Or we go get a, an old school label maker, and we, we type on Bible verses that we stick everywhere, like in our house and in our car, and, and all those could be good things, right? All those can be fine, but they're not creating holiness in us. That does not make us holy, that we can have all these things on the outside. There needs to be a change to our heart. So how exactly do we do that? How exactly do we pursue holiness? And Peter, as he writes this letter in his kindness, once again, he's going to show us two ways in which we pursue holiness. And then he's going to give us three reasons why we should pursue holiness. So, how do we do it? How do we pursue holiness? Well, in verse 14, he tells us, do not be conformed. That word for conform means don't be squeezed or pressed into a mold. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, you probably think of this from the way Paul talked about it in the book of Romans. Don't be conformed to this world, but let your minds be transformed, right? And so what Paul does is he looks and he's like, your mind shouldn't be compressed to this world, shouldn't be conformed to this world. Let it be different. Your minds should be different, which is true, and our minds should be different. But Peter takes a different angle. Did you see? Peter doesn't say, you know, don't don't be conformed to this world. What does Peter say? Don't be conformed to what? The old you. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter's like, I'm not telling you to look at the world right now. I'm looking backwards. Before Christ saved you, before you were changed, before you had a living hope, don't go back to those days again. Don't live like the old you. Instead, be conformed to the new you. Be conformed to Christ and His image. See, it's so different for us because we seem to just say, well, it's us versus the world. But times, we need to look at our own sinfulness and our own hearts And know that Christ has called us to be different. We need to change. Be different from the old you. So we used to think ignorant thoughts and follow ignorant impulses of the past. Some of you right now are probably thinking some of those things in your mind. Like, yeah, I realized I was an idiot. Like, that's ignorant, right? That's the word he uses. We were foolish at that time. But now you're no longer ignorant. Why? Because you know God. You know his truth. And that truth and that reality changes you. And you begin to live for him and live for things that are different and more important. Peter's going to continue to mention this throughout his book, but in chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to talk about the old you. And he says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh which war against your soul. You see those old you things, those passions of the flesh that you used to give into and follow in your ignorance? Peter's like, don't follow them anymore. And some of you have been trying to follow them, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, and you're like, why is my soul so weary, and why am I so exhausted? Because it's a battle. It's a war for your soul. You realize that? There's a real battle. There's a real war that's going on against your soul, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11. And so some of you feel exhausted because you're trying to live in your old ways. You're trying to conform yourself back to who you used to be, and God is telling us, you're no longer those things. Don't go back to those old ways, those old passions of the flesh, those old ignorant ways. Instead, follow the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop saying, don't be like the old you. He gives another way for us to pursue holy, holiness. In verse 15, he says, be holy in all of your conduct. Like, Let that rest for a minute. All of your conduct, this is where you pursue holiness. This was a big deal at this time because holiness, when Peter is writing this, was for the culture mostly seen as something you did within the temple. If somebody was a holy person, they would go into the temple to a false god and they would do different holy acts. They would give alms or they would make a sacrifice or they would do something and they would do their acts of holiness and then they would leave the temple and live their life. So you did your holy acts in the temple and you left them there. And Peter's saying, no, 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 guys, that's not how it works. As believers and as Christians, we have a living hope that goes with us everywhere, everywhere. And so as we leave the the place that we worship God, you know what goes with us? Our holiness, that in all of our conduct, we would be holy before the Lord, that we'd be holy before him. This changes how we interact with everybody, from family members to people in our neighborhood to in the workplace, we interact with them. And this is why we we don't cheat people. We try to be patient with people. We don't be rude. Why? Because this is us living out our holiness before men. Now, the temptation for believers when we read about passages to be holy is that we try to be holy and we think things like this. Maybe we don't say it out loud, but it's things that come up in our mind and our heart as we pursue holiness. We look at the world around us and we think, look at these people. Look at these people, their lives are messes, but not us, <laughs> thankfully not us, and we start to use holiness to judge other people, and that's not how Peter talks about it, it's not how Christ talked about it. Once again, Peter in, in chapter 2 talks about our holiness and our conduct, and this is what he says, keep your conduct, same word that he's using here in chapter 1, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Those are non-believers. Keep it honorable. Keep it holy. Keep it set apart. Why? So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation, when Christ comes again, right? Once again, Peter is just plagiarizing Jesus. Great thing to plagiarize, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, your holiness is not meant to judge other people and condemn other people. Your holiness is to, to be a light to the world. We are different from the culture for the sake of the culture. We are called to be holy, not so we can judge the world, but so that we can impact the world. That is so key to our holiness that we would realize that. And Peter's going to talk about it time and time again throughout this letter, that our holiness is meant that others would see through our life a holy God. Holy God. So knowing those two truths, knowing this is how we pursue holiness, then he gives us three reasons why. Christian, these are three reasons why you and I should be pursuing holiness in this way. These are three reasons why we should be thinking and preparing our minds to, to, to the coming of Christ again. And the first is because we call on him his father, verse 17 tells us. Now he's, he's already hinted of this, this language that those that have trusted in God and believed in him for the forgiveness of our sin, that we are adopted into his family. In verse 14 he says, as obedient children... We're obedient children that we're trusting and following our heavenly Father. But then in verse 17, he says, If you're gonna call God as your Father, then we should look like our Father. And this is why we should be holy, for He is holy. You guys have heard the statement, you know, like Father like Son. Like Father like Son, which can be a good thing if it's a good Father. And you're looking and you're like, man, he is just like his dad in this way. And that's a really good thing. Or it could be negative. If you know somebody that maybe doesn't have great integrity and then you meet their son and their son doesn't have great integrity or something like that, you look and you're like, ooh, like father like son, that's not a good thing. And Peter is telling us that we should be holy because our father is holy. It's a good thing for us to look like our heavenly father. Why? Because he's holy. He's set apart. He's perfect. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's wise. He's kind. He's just And so we should look at our Heavenly Father and say, yeah, we want to pursue that. Those are good things. We should look like our dad. And if we're going to say that we are Christians, then we should look like Christ. We should look like Christ. That's why. We should pursue holiness. But we should also pursue holiness because he is a judge, a just judge. Look at verse 17. I love that these two descriptions of God are so close together that he is Father and he is a judge. You see that in verse 17? You see, he is a loving and kind heavenly Father, but he is also a just judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Yes, he is a Father that wants to welcome us in and adopt us into his family if we would trust and believe in him. But at the same time, there's a truth, there's a reality that we need to know When he comes again, he will judge. Christ will judge, and he will judge impartially, which means we can't bribe him. We can't pay him off. He's not going to sweep some things under the rug. Any injustices, any wrongs that we've done, we will be judged. Why? Because he judges impartially. He's a good and perfect judge. Now, we could spend a whole day, and maybe we will at some point soon, Just looking at this account of Christ's second coming and what it means when the the judgment seat is there. But I want to be clear with us this morning that all who are in Jesus Christ, we don't need to fear the ultimate judgment of being separated from God in hell for all of eternity. We as believers, as Christians, don't need to fear that. Why? Because Jesus already paid the price for our sins on the cross, we've already got this forgiveness. And so we look and we have hope in this forgiveness that we have found in Christ. But we will all give an account for how we lived our lives. Even those that have trusted in Him will stand before Him and give an account for how we lived our lives. God cares about your holiness if you're a believer. He cares about how you live your life day in and day out. And He wants all of your life, all of your conduct to be holy as He is holy And this should be a sobering thought for us, a fearful thought in some extent that how we live our life will be judged before Christ one day. And so we we look and we're like, we want to pursue holiness because we know that Christ is coming again and he will judge impartially. The third reason why he tells us we should be pursuing holiness is because we were ransomed. We were ransomed. Look at verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, you were saved, you were redeemed. Now, what's interesting in here, look closely at verse 18 with me. You would expect it to say, he has ransomed us from sin. That's true. We find that throughout Scripture. That's a reality, but that's not what it says. You might expect it to say, he's here to ransom us from death, but that's not what it says. What does it say in verse 18? He has ransomed us from our futile ways, inherited from our forefathers. Huh? (laughs) What is he talking about right here? Let this truth settle well into your heart this morning. The truth is this, Christian. If you have been ransomed, saved, you are saved from the futility of life. From a life that is meaningless, or without purpose and has no point, just like many people in the past have lived, those forefathers that have gone before us, that have lived and pursued all these worthless things, he's saying Christ has rescued us, redeemed us, ransomed us from all of those fruitless ways of the past. So now we have purpose and meaning in our life. This is worth pursuing. Holiness matters because instead of living a pointless life, we have a point-filled life. This is what he's saying. And then it's important for us to know what it costs for Christ to do this. What it costs for God to ransom us. Yes, from our sin. Yes, from our death. Absolutely. And yes, from our vain, fruitless ways. But it cost Christ his life. Peter uses this wonderful imagery here. He talks about The whole idea of he didn't buy us back. He didn't ransom us with silver or gold. And once again, what he's doing is he's leaning into the the modern day time and what what they would do to be ransomed at that time, to be redeemed or forgiven. What would happen is uh, a slave could work and you could actually buy your freedom so you would work, and you would earn up money, silver and gold, and then when you would raised enough money to purchase your freedom, you would go to the temple, and you would bring that gold in, you'd bring that money in, and you'd give it to the temple, and the temple would kind of be a middleman between you and your boss or your, your owner or whatever, and he would be the middleman and make it official. Yes, we've received this money, we're giving it to your, your former boss, and now you are freed. And that's the image that Peter's trying to get people to realize. We were a slave to these old things, and now there's freedom. But it's not because we earned it by working hard. Our morality didn't give us the gold and the silver we needed that we brought to God, and we laid it at the temple, and we're like, now we're free from all our fruitless ways. No. It is through his precious blood of Christ. It's through his blood that we are redeemed, that we are ransomed. And then he moves this very specific cultural reference at that time to a step back to look at the grand narrative of all creation, that our God is a redeeming God who ransoms. And he uses this language of of a lamb that was slain, and he compares Christ's blood to this lamb without blemish and without spot, which is pointing all the way in the Old Testament where lambs would be sacrificed as God's people were there in Egypt and they were enslaved. And judgment is coming into the city and they took a pure, spotless lamb and they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost of the house so that the judgment would pass over them and they would walk forth free. And he's saying just like that in the Old Testament, that's what Christ did as he hung on the cross and died for our sins, that judgment wouldn't land on us when he comes again, but that we can have hope in the grace of Jesus Christ that awaits us when he comes This is what he's telling us, and this is what he's challenging us to do, to look at the precious blood of Christ and treasure it. So the last application I would give us as we close is let's live in a healthy fear, because that's the third commandment that's given here, that we would, would live with fear. But it's not a fear of Christ if we know him. His precious blood was shed for us. He was the pure spotless lamb, Let's fear living as though Jesus' blood is not precious to us. Because we are all prone to live as though His blood didn't matter. And His blood wasn't poured out for us. That's why we run back to the old ways and the old us. Let us remember every day, every morning that we wake up, God, we want to live as though Your blood is precious. It is through your blood on the cross and your resurrection that now we have a living hope. And our hearts and our minds rest in that living hope until you come again. Bow your heads with me. Oh God of our hope, help us this morning to respond to your truth. Lord, help us to change our minds right now. May they become active, attentive minds to you. Change our hearts now that our hearts will be filled with, with hope in your second coming. Lord, may we respond, some of us today, by asking you for forgiveness. Your precious blood has already been shed. You welcome uh, those who are lost or in their sin to be adopted into your family that we would look and call you father and so for some of us that's exactly what we need to do today exactly what we need to do we need to come and ask god to forgive us of our unholy lives the times that we've treated christ's precious blood as worthless and trampled over it in our sin you can pray and ask god to forgive you right now and he will do it asking him to forgive you that you would have hope that one day you'll see him face to face with grace and joy. For others of us, Lord, I pray that you would renew our minds. Help us to think on your coming, that we would be filled with hope as we think of what it looks like when that day of peace shines brightly here. And may it breed in our hearts this living hope as we pursue and follow you. God, we love you, and we know apart from you, there is no hope. It's in your hopeful name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's respond to this truth today. The gospel demands a response. So if you haven't trusted in him, then trust in him today. Pray now. Or maybe right after service, you need to go to Next Steps and have a conversation with somebody about what it means to love and to follow Jesus Christ, to have this hope in your heart. And for us as believers, we respond with with hope and joy today, and that response comes out in a number of different ways. We, we sing to the Lord. We lift our voices loud. We also bring our offerings, and we give generously to God because He's been so generous to us. But church family, may we not leave here today and, and have an unresponsive heart. May we respond well to the glory and the goodness of God. Let's stand now, and let's respond through our singing.